Welcome to Whores Talk Horror. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello, welcome to Whores Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. And welcome to the second part of our Mike Flanagan discussion. If you missed the last episode, please go back and listen to it. In that episode, we discussed his films Absentia, Oculus, Hush, Ouija, Origin of Evil, and Before I Wake. Also, as we said at the beginning of our previous episode, warning, there will be spoilers. Because it's hard to talk about director's work in depth without really delving into the films, and, well, that ultimately leads to spoilers. Before we talk about our first movie for this episode, I do want to mention something that we talked about in last week's episode regarding the movie Hush. I mentioned that I thought Flanagan and his wife, Kate Siegel, she's also the star of Hush, wrote the script while staying in the Stanley Hotel. So I did a little research and I found an article from ScreenDaily.com written by Jeremy Kay in which he interviews Flanagan. And he said, quote, We wrote the first draft very quickly, and the entire script was modeled after our own home. Once we finished that draft, we wanted to get out of that environment and give it one more pass with a different perspective. So we went to the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, the hotel that inspired Stephen King to write The Shining, and finished the script there. We even stayed in room 217, the room King stayed in on his visit. We couldn't have asked for a more inspiring place to write. In that same interview, he also said about the writing process, we live in Glendale, California, in a house with a lot of windows and glass. That's basically my worst nightmare of a house to live in. I was going to say, this is freaking me out right now. Uh, He said that we started by moving through our house and really learning about its strengths and weaknesses and then began to walk through various scenarios of someone trying to break in. I'd look for ways into the house and she'd think of ways to defend herself. Once we had a scenario that we both liked, we'd sit together and type it out. Dude, that's kind of like what we used to do as kids. (laughs) That's a brilliant way to write it, which is, I think, why yeah. that movie is so good to me, because it does seem pretty realistic. Like you said, it's not just like someone running upstairs, you know, when they should be running out the front door. Like, you can tell that she's like going through different scenarios in her head. Like, OK, what do I have to do to survive? Right. And that shows they put work into it. You said that movie's so good to me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it was it was grammatically correct at the time. That movie's so good to me. Well, you said that's why that movie is so good to me, but it is why. Oh, oh, I got it. Sorry. I'm just interpreting it a different way than how it was meant. Sorry. It works both ways. <laughs> Anyways. Okay, Sharon, what's the first movie we're going to talk about? All right, so the next movie may be my favorite Flanagan movie, but I don't know. It's really so hard to decide but we're going to be talking about Gerald's Game released in 2017. So the basic plot after an attempt to reignite the passion in their marriage goes awry Jesse is left handcuffed to a bed in a secluded house after her husband Gerald unexpectedly dies. While figuring out a way to break free she starts to hallucinate and reminisce about a horrible secret from her childhood. It is based on the 1992 novel by Stephen King. So I liked this movie way more than I thought I would. 
I actually related a lot to the character of Jesse that was beautifully played by Carla Gugino. Is that how you pronounce her name? You know, I never know how to pronounce her name at all. I, I'll, we can go with that. Apologies to Carla. Yes, we apologize if we, we love mispronouncing you. your name, but I think it's Carla Gugino. Yeah. She's such a brilliant actress, and she was also really, really good in Hill House. I know she's been in tons of movies and TV shows, but I'm not really sure if her talent has ever been fully showcased like this before. Mm as it has been in Flanagan's work. So good for him for giving her these amazing roles. Agreed. I knew the basic premise of this film going into it, but I had no idea that the main character, Jesse, was going to have essentially a psychological breakdown that would lead her to having therapy sessions with her dead husband and also her younger self while she's handcuffed to a bed trying to survive. (laughs) And the rabbit hole she goes down in her mind is so dark, but it's also very relatable, even if you haven't experienced the sort of trauma that she has experienced in her past. I think that everyone could can kind of relate to her character in some way. Yeah. And now I really, really want to read the book because I think King probably delves much more deeply into her mind and, you know, basically psychology and the way that the mind works is completely fascinating to me. So I think I would really like the book as well. And I'm also kind of curious where King was able to pull that inspiration from in order to write this because it does give such good insight into the mind of a mentally abused woman, at least in the film. And, you know, you would think that a woman would have wrote this. So I'm, I'm really, really curious as to what inspired King to write this novel. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. Although if you read the novel knowing Stephen King, you will probably need years of therapy because it probably <laughs> gets a way, uh, like tons darker than this does. Um, so and just, this gets really dark. <laughs> so just fair warning, Sharon, if, to make that, if you make that decision, make it wisely. Um, I, yeah. I too went into this with only a basic idea of the plot. Um, for some reason, I had little interest in watching this. I think because I'd heard it is so intense. So um, I'm probably never going to watch this movie again. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can understand that. That said, this completely blew me away. Completely. I feel like I read somewhere that people thought that this was one of King's unfilmable books, which I'm going to guess may have been due to how deeply psychological this gets. And in the hands of a lesser director, this movie, this movie could have sucked hard. But as usual, Flanagan stepped up to the plate. Unfilmable, you say? Hold my cuffs. Uh, to your point about Carla Gugino, she's my favorite kind of character actress because she tends to disappear into her roles. You've seen her a dozen times in like 20 different things, but didn't know it was her. But in Gerald's game, she's got top-notch material with a top-notch director, and boy, does she take the gloves off. Ha ha! <laughs> Pun intended. And put a pin in that. <laughs> We're going to get to that shortly. <laughs> 
Her performance drives this batshit insane journey. So while I wasn't surprised by how utterly fucking phenomenal she was, I'm also so glad that she and Mike Flanagan found each other because yes, he keeps ser- he keeps giving her good roles and she keeps delivering for sure. A kind of off the cuff observation, Gerald, her husband, he sucked. I mean, that was the point as unfortunately survivors of childhood abuse tend to be drawn to partners who are abusers as adults. And since I agree that this movie is best approached with little to no plot knowledge, I'll say no more. Uh, If anyone listening has not too late, (laughs) I know, right? Uh, If anyone listening, spoiling the shit out of this movie for those of you who've not seen it. Yeah, I guess that was, yeah, whatever. Uh, If anyone listening has not seen it, despite the fact that everything I just said, I do recommend watching it regardless of what you've heard about it, the execution of this film as a whole is superb. And while she'll probably never win an award as truly great character actors, I feel rarely do. If you look at Carla Gugino's career, much like Flanagan regular Henry Thomas, she's good enough at what she does to actually make a living as an actor. Uh, Maybe it's not always a blockbuster or even a movie you even knew existed, but she's constantly working and actually making a living doing it, which in Hollywood, and let's be honest, as a woman who's not a perky 24-year-old, is remarkable. And it's clearly due to her talent. Gerald's Game is essentially a whole bottle episode, really, for the most part. And it's riveting from start to finish. Now, can we just talk about the degloving scene? I could not (laughs) watch that whole scene and I can handle gore pretty well but I had a that's saying a lot coming from you actually yeah I had a look away because it was so realistic and also reminder I'm a nurse so I've actually worked on cadavers before including a very fresh cadaver normally the cadavers are kind of a mummified looking and one of our teachers actually got in trouble for bringing out a uh, a too fresh cadaver that didn't even have its face covered which it should have uh but that's a whole other story basically i can handle gore and this i had to look away um also what the fuck up is with mike flanagan in hand scenes (laughs) i noticed that there was actually a very similar scene in ouija did you notice that mindy on the rewatch there was almost a slight degloving scene in that movie i know Maybe I'm making it up. Do you remember that, Spencer? Uh, I, know, I, I remember at least three fucked up hand scenes in his movies. I don't specifically remember which ones they were other than Gerald's Game, but I know for a fact three times at least, and I think you're right, I think Ouija was one of them. Well, I, I remember after watching Ouija, before you saw Gerald's Game, I remember texting you, Mindy, and saying like, oh my God, yeah. there's a scene in Ouija that is very similar to a scene in Gerald's game. Oh, There's you a- did. I thought you said, oh, I think Oculus is what you no, mean. Well, there's the nail scene in Oculus. Which, fuck that noise. I honestly don't remember the exact scene in Ouija, but I remember being like, oh my God, that's almost the same as the degloving scene. Um, in Hush, she gets her hand crushed in the door. In Hill House, there's a hand scene. Dr. Sleep has a hand scene. So... I did a little bit of digging, and I'm definitely not the only person to notice this, but although since I just saw most of these movies within the past year, I am a little bit late to the party, Um, but I did find this really funny tweet from May 16th, (laughs) 2020, 
and a response from Mike Flanagan on Twitter. So I'm just going to read this because I thought this was hilarious. Dear at Flanagan Film, why do you hate Han so much? Signed, everyone who watches your movies. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. To which Flanagan responded, dear everyone, I don't. Oculus injured eyes, nails, mouth. Hush is the only hand injury, but also had legs, necks, eyes, etc. Gerald's game degloving is from the book. Dr. Sleep hand injuries in the book. Those are Stephen King's fault, but now I'll do it because it's funny. Oh, great. (laughs) Thanks a lot. (laughs) And then someone else responded with, really? People question you about hands? I always wondered why you're so obsessed with the theme of childhood trauma and the grieving process. Both very, uh, very relative and uh, valid questions. Yeah, touche to that last person. But yes, that that is definitely another question. Uh, The whole childhood trauma uh, thing. But so there you go. Now he just does it because he thinks it's funny, which I think is awesome. You can expect a lot more hand scenes. Now that's going to be like an Easter egg in each of his movies. There's going to be some sort of hand trauma. Gross. And I don't think it's going to be hard to find. No. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Yes, the degloving scene was horrific, but it was also one of, in my opinion, the best legit uses of extreme gore in an otherwise somewhat understated psychological drama slash thriller. That's all I'm going to say about that, because cringy, it definitely was for sure. I did my like look towards the TV, but not at the TV thing, so I didn't have to see much detail. Um, actually, right as I was pressing play to start this movie, my friend Andy texted me, who's also a really big Stephen King fan. And actually, Andy, if you're listening, uh, let me know if you have Gerald's game and if Sharon can borrow it. Thanks. Uh, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Andy. I wanted to share an excerpt from our text combo because now I understand its relevance having seen the movie. Andy wrote... I told him I was about to watch it, Gerald's Game, and he said, well, there's one scene in particular that's like, holy shit, I can never unsee that, me. He, meaning Flanagan, usually has at least one Stir of Echoes-esque cringeworthy moment I know to half-watch. Andy, this makes Stir of Echoes look like a hangnail. And uh, (laughs) you guys were not wrong about that. Not at all. Yeah, I, I know Spencer was always freaked out with the nail scene from Stir of Echoes. Oh, God, I can't. I can't. Because they, ugh. I have nail issues. I, yeah, no, I am right there with you. And that's a bad one. Now that I have actually had um, two toenails fall off oh! because, of, because of running, <laughs> I can deal slightly better with nail scenes. Oh, I am freaking out over here. (laughs) When we were marathon training, I was like, oh, man. I was like, this nail is going to come off like any time now. And it like held on for like two months. Okay. And then it it just like, but it was like literally like hanging on by like a thread for two months. Spencer, make her stop. (laughs) Oh, my God. I can't I can't make her do anything. (laughs) All right. So just a little bit of trivia. Uh, the book Midnight Mass that Jesse throws at the dog in Gerald's game was written by Kate Siegel's character from Hush. Midnight Mass is also a new TV series written by Flanagan about, quote, an isolated island community that experiences miraculous events and frightening omens after the arrival of a charismatic, mysterious young priest. Ooh, that sounds right up our alley. But that's also really awesome. I didn't notice that. 
That's really cool. Is it going to be a young hot priest? I, it better be. I, it, probably. Um, and also, uh, something that I did not think about, but someone wrote this in the trivia. At any time, Jesse could have asked Siri to call a 911 for her without ever touching her phone. All iPhones have Siri enabled especially for emergencies, but that would have made for a very short movie. (laughs) And the book was written in 92. So why adapt the book to a screenplay just to do something like that? I mean, I guess if Flanagan wanted to piss off King even more than Kubrick did, he could have done that, which would have been kind of genius. That's Um, that's hilarious. I hadn't even thought about that, but I, well, first of all, I rarely use Siri, so I guess it's good to know if I ever find myself in a situation. But I, I kind of also wonder, <laughs> like, I, I know that I've had to, like, enable Siri for certain stuff. I, I don't want to try it out and call an ambulance to my house right now. But I, I don't know that that, well, anyway, small detail, moving on. Yeah, I also don't use Siri, but I'm going to say you probably have to preset your phone to do that. Yeah, I think so, too. This next movie I've been just dying to talk about so we can finally get to it. Another Stephen King adaptation. Sharon, what are we going to talk about? Dr. Sleep, which was released in 2019. I've covered this movie before in our uh, 2019 horror movie roundup episode, so I'm not going to go into a ton of detail here, but this is um, Mindy's first time watching it, as she said, so I'm very curious to hear her thoughts on it. Uh, the plot, many years after traumatizing events at the Overlook Hotel, a now adult Dan Torrance must protect a young girl with similar powers from a cult known as the Trunat, who prey on children with the shinning to remain <laughs> immortal. Love it. Uh, I may have mentioned some of these things before in our previous episode, but I don't really remember and didn't feel like listening (laughs) to that whole episode to find out. So if I'm repeating myself, I do apologize. Uh, First, I just want to say that for me, reading the book actually really helped me understand the movie a lot better. And likewise, the movie helped me understand the book a lot better. So if you haven't read the book, you may not appreciate the movie as much or uh, you may be a little bit lost if you've only seen the movie uh, a particularly a particularly good example of this um, I at least for me personally was the theater scene towards the beginning of the movie with Snakebite Andy that part of the book made a lot more sense to me after watching the movie and if I hadn't read the book and just saw that theater scene I might have been just as confused by just watching the movie if that makes any sense. Does that make sense, Mindy? Yeah. Um, but I don't, I also don't really have perspective because I, I wasn't really confused when I read in the book. So like, I don't know how I would have felt like without that background knowledge. I, guess. I also tune to like, or I also kind of like zone out a lot when I'm reading. So, uh, <laughs> or any time of the day any doing time. anything. Yeah. My, my focus is kind of limited. So that also may have something to do with it. <laughs> Um, but I definitely do recommend reading or listening to the audiobook to get a fuller picture of the story because there are quite a lot of differences between the book and the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you've already wa- watched the movie, go back, read the book, listen to the audiobook if you can. 
I think they complement each other very well. Agreed. Also, I kind of want to practice harnessing Andy's gift. I don't I, want you to. I want to just be able to like whisper and be like, Spencer, you are going to get me more wine now. Okay. And, and then just, oh, see, <laughs> there he goes into the kitchen. <laughs> hey, hey, Spencer, don't forget Mindy's next after you refill Sharon's glass. <laughs> okay. And he's out the door <laughs> driving over there right now. I also want to mention the casting of the characters for young Danny, uh, Wendy, Jack, and Dick Halloran. All fucking great. But as we've mentioned many times now, Flanagan does a great job casting his movies. Yeah, especially uh, Halloran for me. I was, yeah, he, he, it was like dead on. It was amazing. Exactly. He was so similar to uh, Scatman Crothers, who is the actor in The Shining that played Dick Halloran. Like, phenomenal yeah. job. Yeah. Um, like, the tone, the cadence, everything. It was amazing. And finally, the last point I'm going to bring up before I let Mindy take over and tell me all her thoughts on the film. I'm so impressed with Flanagan's adaptation of the script. He had such a hard job to try and please everyone who are fans of not only the shining book but also fans of the movies both Kubrick's version and also the miniseries but then also Stephen King himself Uh, according to IMDb Flanagan actually had to convince Stephen King that despite his own distaste for Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, audiences were a lot more familiar with that version rather than The Shining miniseries from 1997 and also largely preferred Kubrick's film Mm -hmm. to the miniseries. Therefore, Dr. Sleep had to be a sequel to Kubrick's film rather than the miniseries or the book and I think he pulled it off rather successfully and the characters that he chose to eliminate from the movie or to alter were all done in such a way that it didn't alter any of the main points of the story and I know I said that this was the last thing but one (laughs) last last thing I'm going to say is just a quote that I wrote down while re-watching Dr. Sleep because I think it's it's so relevant to our time right now Quote, our beliefs don't make us better people. Our actions make us better people. I know, totally sappy and kind of cliche, but I like when he said that during the movie, I was just like, oh, it's so true. It is. No, it is. And quite beautiful at that. All right, Mindy, please spill your guts. I've been dying to hear this. What did you think? I've been dying to talk about it. Uh, I, too, read the book, um, both the original book The Shining and Dr. Sleep and while I enjoyed the book and loved the characters it didn't really blow me away um, but I really liked this movie and agree that Flanagan totally fucking nailed it man like from casting to set design like I agree he did such a fantastic job adapting a book that frankly I had no idea how it would or could even translate to film but again, these talents are the reason we're talking about Mike Flanagan today. <laughs> um, I also agree that the book and movie are sort of companions to one another. And I, w- I do really wonder what I would have thought had I not read the book and just watched the movie. Um, so if anybody has done that, I, we would love to hear your thoughts. Um, Ewan McGregor 
I mean, I like him anyway, but he was exactly how I pictured Dan as I was reading the book. And even the town that he ends up in, his tiny studio apartment, the place is not in the Kubrick film. It was still all like exactly how I pictured while reading. Even that little train set up in the town square, it was kind of crazy. I, I, oh my God. But that said, there are some changes from the book that caught me off guard. Uh, the character of Billy Freeman, who is the first man that, to greet Dan as he randomly chooses his new hometown by just randomly getting off a bus. He's much older in the book. Um, in the film, he's about the same age as Dan and he's played by actor Cliff Curtis. Uh, anyway, I still liked Billy a great deal in the movie, but we're going to come back to that in a second. Uh, Flanagan and I guess his the casting agents he works with are casting geniuses, which leads me to the character of Aubra Stone, a new character played by newcomer uh, Kaylee Curran. I wasn't sure how I felt about Aubra in the book, but she is fantastic in the movie. And if I'm not mistaken... This is actually, I think I mispronounced it. I think her name's Kylie. But Kylie. The, Kylie. This is her first role ever. Look it up, Spencerpedia. I'm pre- like, she, uh, I think they they did like a mass call audition and she just showed up. Yeah, she was amazing. Because she thought it would be fun. And she's, she kills it. She's mature beyond her years. But with the occasional trace of that young girl, she really is. And she and McGregor make an excellent team together. Spencer, did you find it? Yeah, she was in a movie called I Can, I Will, I Did from 2017. Uh, but I don't know how big of a role. Um, she, yeah, she's not one of the, the top people. So maybe it was kind of a small role. But I mean, yeah, this she has a huge role in this one. And I think that in the credits at the end, they said an introducing. Maybe. And that might, that looks like an independent film too. So anyway, she's awesome. And this is her break through role or breakout role for sure it was amazing um and i'm not gonna get into the true knot for the sake of time except to say that in the book they kind of felt like these like rando villains thrown in the mix because hey we need a bad guy right but in the movie it, it just it resonated with me more and made me go okay this actually makes sense to me it feels way less random agreed and then there's Rose the Hat, the leader of True Knot and essentially the big bad of Dr. Sleep, played by Rebecca Ferguson. And I'll, I'll be honest, I was a little meh about her in the book. But boy, was she a great villain on screen. Uh, when discussing Rose in his last podcast on the left interview, Flanagan said, quote, Rebecca Ferguson approached the role of Rose with the thought that Rose thinks she is the hero of the story. She will do anything to protect her family. And in this case, they are under attack and fighting to survive. Dude, that's the best kind of villain for sure. I have to talk about the ending. I, and we've already said spoiler alert, so fuck it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> initially, I was not happy about the way the film version ended. Uh, in the book, Billy is injured, but he doesn't die. And that death kind of hurt, I have to say. Um, as did Danny's fate in the movie. The Shining and Dr. Sleep are about finding peace with your demons. The main reason for King's distaste of Kubrick's film, I believe, is largely due to the fact that the book was very personal to King and his battles with drugs and alcoholism. 
In the book, Jack Torrance fights his demons, sending Wendy and Danny out while he heads to the basement, blows the boiler and the hotel off the map, but saved his loved ones despite himself. And let's face it, that's not the story Kubrick was interested in telling, clearly. In the book of Dr. Sleep, Dan psychically returns to the Overlook for the big final showdown while Flanagan actually takes us there in his film. And the results are truly stunning for sure. I know that sounds cheesy, but they are. Uh, Initially, I was really kind of pissed, though, about the ending as Danny has seen some shit in his day, man, and fights addiction, ghosts, past and present, Rose, the hat, and that old broad still in room 237. But he finds peace in the end, which works in the book, but for film, meh. I've come to think the film ending was actually quite genius and frankly, really beautiful. Uh, I felt this way while watching the film, even though at the time I was yelling at my TV and ugly crying. (laughs) Uh, Because Flanagan gives Danny and Jack Torrance the ending they deserve. Closure. Dan fights the sins of the father and wins, stopping himself from hurting Abra, as Jack Torrance failed to do, specifically in the Kubrick version. And it's Dan who heads to the basement, knowing he's overcome by the overlook, but he can end it. And by the time he saw his mother, I was I was a sobbing fucking mess. I, I oh, beautiful. Yeah, I like the way that he took the ending, basically for what Jack did in the ending of the book, yeah. The Shining, and then passed the torch on yes. to yes. Dan Torres. A hundred yeah. times, yes. Uh, now, we could do a whole episode on this film alone, focusing on only the Easter eggs Flanagan stuck in as winks to Kubrick, the book, and other works for King. Uh, so for any Dark Tower fans out there, pay attention. I've not even attempted to take on those novels, but apparently any gunslingers out there will find lots of fun winks to enjoy in Dr. Sleep. The only negative thing I have to say, really, is that I really fucking wish I'd seen this in the theaters. I oh, wait, 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 wait. Can I interrupt you yeah, and just say yeah. that I told you so. We went Shut to up. go see it in the theater. Shut up. And, and I invited you and said, Mindy, do you want to go see it in the theater? You're going to regret it if you don't see it in the theater. And you were like, nah, Dead on mini impersonation, by the way. Um, yeah, so I told you so. Shut Anyways, up. go on. Shut <laughs> up. Shut up. <laughs> I actually have had quite a few <laughs> chances, but when you asked me, there was something going on, or there was, I don't know, whatever. No, there wasn't anything going on. You were just like, it's Sunday. I got work tomorrow. And I was like, so fucking what? I was like, this is like your only chance to see it in the theater. We found like one theater that was still showing a doctor sleep because it, it left theaters because it did not do great at the box office. So it left theaters pretty early. And I was like, I need to see this movie in the theater because I know I'll regret it. And you will, too. And you were like, meh. I feel so. like it was late. It was a late showing or I there was something that. I or I was tired. Excuses, excuses. Yeah, and and now, but now you regret it. So just say you were right, Sharon. <laughs> you could have just started. You could have just started with that. Like, just say you're I right. I bow to you. I will always listen to you in oh the my God. future. You right. are the wise one. <laughs> this is what I've learned. 
I will say, okay, Sharon, you were right. There you go. But I will not say the rest. <laughs> All right. Well, to, to be fair, I, I have a great TV and I watch it in 4K. And that's something that I don't normally go on about. But holy shit. In this case, it looked amazing. So there is that. I did watch it in a beautiful on a beautiful device. Um, in closing, I listened to an interview with Flanagan this week where he talked about uh, screening the film with King himself. Whoa. Uh, they'd correspond. Okay, so I didn't realize this, but during the filming of the movie, they had been corresponding via email, but never actually met. And when asked what he said to King when he met him, Flanagan said that he is such a fan, he literally doesn't remember. He remembers <laughs> he remembers shaking his King Stephen King's hand, then nothing. Then the next thing he remembers is sitting next to King in the theater, screening the movie, um, which I can relate to that because I either lose the ability to speak or word vomit all over someone that I'm geeking out over meeting. So, uh, Having said that, though, I think Flanagan's got me beat on the, like, fan freak out meter. My God, I couldn't even imagine having to watch a movie that I made adapted on a book by one of my heroes, idols, and, like, <laughs> like the entire time I would just be like, oh, my God, what is he thinking? Oh, my God. Oh, shit. I wish I didn't do that there. Oh, shit. I wish I edited that part out. Like, you Oh my God, he must have been a wreck. Plus the fact that like this one in particular was extra contentious because of the Kubrick situation. So yeah, but I just, I thought it was so funny that he was like, I literally don't remember what I said to him. All I know is the next thing I'm like sitting next to him in a theater and I'm paraphrasing of course, but like. And King liked it, right? Oh yeah, he loved it. He loved okay. it. Yeah, he did. He he really liked it. So thank God, because who knows what would have happened to Flanagan if, if King didn't <laughs> like it. Right. Oh well, didn't he give his sign off of the script even before they started shooting? No, I list because oh. I think on the last podcast episode um, where they interviewed Flanagan, he said that he didn't need to get permission right. from King to do that. So he basically went into it without, I think, approval from King or they were emailing back and forth for sure because he said that yeah. he had to convince like you like I think you mentioned this, but he had to convince Stephen King that using the overlook as a reference visually, like that would resonate more with viewers. And King said, fine, okay, fine, do it. So they he he was being respectful of his idol and was definitely trying to get his opinion, but the fact that he didn't actually meet him until he had to fucking watch the movie with him in his like home Stephen King theater or whatever, like that's, I probably would have vomited all over the place. And he gave King the ending that King wished Kubrick would have done. Right. I think that that, yeah. And that's why I was the sobbing mess at the end because I was like, closure. Yeah. Just a little bit of trivia here. Ewan McGregor admitted that he doesn't really like horror, so he never watched The Shining until he started acting because he felt he could no longer ignore its classic status, which I think is kind of funny because he was also in Nightwatch and Shallow Grave, which I would consider both of those to be horror yeah, films. And really quick side note to this. The actor who played Billy in Doctor Sleep actually was in the movie Sunshine, which is directed by Danny Boyle, who of course did Transpotting and a bunch of movies with Ewan McGregor. Fun little hmm. connection there. And I recommend Nightwatch and Shallow Grave. I haven't seen either of those in a fucking 
while but i have shell grave on criterion on blu-ray so uh when we are allowed to see each other safely again we should totally watch it no you can just mail that shit over here Uh uh-uh because <laughs> i don't know when i don't know when we're gonna be able to hang out in indoors again um and also the set of the overlook hotel was constructed in six weeks wow uh i think i mentioned in our previous episode how flanagan actually took the original blueprints from the original set of kubrick's movie to recreate the set almost exactly i mean it looked almost like it was digitally created. It was that uh, well done. But they actually rebuilt the set, which was amazing. Attention to detail, man. Really. Yeah. Seriously, that guy. Holy crap. Um, and really quick, I know that um, there... I, I don't remember where... Oh, I think it might have been in the visitation, Visitations podcast or it might have been on online. I don't remember which source, but y'all can find it. Uh, maybe GQ, but Flanagan said that he cast you in McGregor because everybody, all the other actors that came in to audition would be like Kubrick and like talking about the original movie, whereas Flan- uh, psh, Flanagan, you and McGregor walked in and was like, yeah, 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 Kubrick, great. Let's talk about addiction and recovery. And Flanagan was like, this is my guy. I like that a lot. Um, I don't remember at which point in which interview this was in either but uh flanagan said that he the reason he chose to recreate some of the the kubrick scenes as opposed to like just using clips from the original film was for character perspective um for instance the blood gushing elevators in the kubrick film it's young danny who sees them and kubrick's shot is framed so it it looks like it's literally from the point of view of a six-year-old but in dr sleep it's Rose the Hat who sees the the flashback of the elevators, but she's an adult. So the perspective level had to be changed, which, again, attention to detail. Holy shit. That was awesome. Yeah, I wouldn't have even have thought of that. Totally. Totally. A much lazier director would have just used the original footage rather than trying to, you know, spending six weeks tracking down blueprints, recreating these sets and like even like little details I read about like matching the paint colors and everything like that. It's incredible. It really is. And the first time we see young Danny, you know, on his big wheel rolling through the halls, I legit thought that that was just taken from the movie, the original movie. It wasn't, but I at first Mm. thought it was until he stops and turns around and you're like, Oh, that's totally not the original Danny, but yeah, impressive as hell for sure. Yeah, I think we said this before. There were only two shots that were actually reused from the from the original yes. movie, and they were two exterior yes. mountain shots, basically that of he the had digital. Yeah, the car driving, and then I think it was the one over like the water with the island and the river mm-hmm. lake or whatever it is. Yeah, um, and then they were just digitally changed. I think they added snow and changed the color and stuff. So yeah, and when we rewatched it recently, I was looking out for them and. I never would have guessed that no. those were reused. I mean, they just never. looked so good. In contrast, while I watched it, I was like, wait a minute, that's bullshit. He didn't actually pull any clips from the Kubrick film because of that reason, because he altered it a bit or whatever. But yeah, I was like, to find that out, I was like, wow, this guy's amazing. Yeah, and I recommend we we actually um, purchased the director's cut of Dr. Sleep, so... I would recommend watching that. Some of it's it's not 
too too different from okay. when we saw it in the theater there was definitely some extended scenes with i think the the little girl in the beginning of the movie right um that scene was extended and then also the scene with jacob trending yeah. the, the baseball boy was extended and it was a little more uh violent yeah and gruesome yeah i think the majority of the difference or maybe the whole difference is just extended scenes they they added more um exposition and you know just just more story and so you know it if you've already seen the movie you might not automatically recognize it because i don't think there's any new scenes or new material necessarily they're just longer scenes um which bring in more of the story from the book so you just get a fuller view of the whole thing and it's like a good half hour long or something it's it's extensive and you actually emailed me a link of the differences between the director's cut and the theatrical release cut so we can um post that in our episode description so for those of you who have seen dr sleep if you are interested in watching or purchasing the director's cut you can see what exactly the differences are see if it's uh worth your time to watch that um spencer actually answered a question i had about the director's cut was was there any were there any scenes that we didn't see and it sounds like there wasn't so not that i can remember yeah i don't think there were i have to say though that and i credit flanagan with this is that um the scene with jacob tremblay in the book is horrifying and it is in the movie too but he I feel like Flanagan finds a way to show really horrifying things like that, with the exception of Gerald's game, obviously. And he shoots it in a way that it's still horrifying, but it's not like you're... I don't know how to describe what I'm saying, but it's not like we're watching Jacob Tremblay as the human be tortured. It's it's the character, and the horror still comes along without showing... Act being like, oh my god, did they actually hurt that kid? Do you know what I mean? Like, there's certain movies where you're like, wait, did they? Re- that looks like that kid endured shit. I know people said that about The Exorcist with Linda Blair. Yeah, no, it's funny that you bring that up though, because in the director's cut, it is a little bit more graphic. Um, and honestly, I, I, I don't think they show much more vis- visibly, like as far as um, you know, gore wise, but just like the the pain and anguish that he's showing. The scenes definitely more drawn out. And okay. I did remember reading um, some trivia that that was the hardest scene that Flanagan said he'd ever had to shoot. Oh yeah, and that all the other actors were so convinced by Tremblay's performance that they were like horrified and freaked out and like felt really really bad about it (laughs) like everyone was kind of like traumatized and then as soon as they called cut Jacob Tremblay just kind of like hopped up and like started like laughing or whatever and like walked over to his dad and like grabbed a snack from like (laughs) food services (laughs) I love shit like that I do too and everyone was just like are you fucking kidding me like (laughs) everyone else is like traumatized and the kids just like acting the one who's going (laughs) through it is like ah whatever well and that is I think what I was trying to say is that like in the the cut that I saw which is just like the regular cut to me that was the most uncomfortable is seeing his anguish and I knew logically that they weren't actually hurting him but like the fact that that horror it, it comes through so clearly. I just, it, it's genius on the actor's part, but also obviously on Flanagan's part. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, now we get to the one, the big one, 
at least for me, Sharon, where are we going next? The Haunting of Hill House, released on Netflix in October of 2018. This is a 10-episode miniseries. It stars all Flanagan's usual suspects, Henry Thomas, Kate Siegel, Carla Gugino, Lulu Wilson, Elizabeth Reeser, and Annabeth Gish, to name a few. Uh, I'm sure there's a few others that I'm missing here. Kate Siegel and Flanagan have worked on so many horror movies together that I kind of think of them as like the less rock and roll version of Robin Cherry Moon Zombie. Oh, I like that comparison. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's kind of true. You know, they're like this perfect couple that just like is able to just stop. Stop talking because you're going to jinx them. And I don't want that to happen. So let's. Okay. 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 All right. Here. They're awesome. They're awesome. I'm, I'm knocking on wood. That just, I broke any curses that I started to create. (laughs) All right. So basic plot of this comes from IMDb. It explores a group of siblings who as children grew up in what would go on to become the most famous haunted house in the country. Now adults and forced back together in the face of tragedy, the family must finally confront the ghosts of their past, some of which still lurk in their minds while others may actually be stalking the shadows of Hill House. So I wanted to rewatch the entire series before we did this episode and I'm so so glad I did because it usually takes me like two watches to like fully absorb something mm-hmm. and just like really remember all the little details and this mini series I, I can honestly probably watch this a third time and gain even more information that I did uh the first two times I watched this because there's just so much to take in but I didn't realize how sad and heartbreaking this is. I mean, oh. it was on the, on the first watch it was, but it was even more sad and more heartbreaking than I remember. Like, I don't remember oh. crying yeah. watching it the first time around. I oh, think dude. I cried in almost every single episode. But it could also be just like what else is going on in the world. Like, I we're all very emotional right now. I, yeah, I, I ugly cried the fuck out of the finale when I watched it. Like, ugly cried. Yeah, I totally did the first time around. Oh, my God. Like, just, like, the the scene in the, the funeral home. I mean, that, that oh. whole... Or I should say the, the, the entire episode that takes place in the funeral home. That yeah. one was just so tragic. And, actually, I'm going to talk about that one just a little bit more um, in a minute. But, you know, as usual, every actor in this miniseries, no matter how minor, is fucking great. Right. Uh, and there was an Easter egg that somehow I did not catch oh first God. time around. The scene of young Luke and Steven in the clubhouse. And there's an E.T. lunchbox with Elliot on it. And Elliot, of course, being played by Henry Thomas, who is one of the main stars of The Haunting of Hill House and also in E.T. Um, so that was like a fun little nod. I'm like, how did I not notice this the first time around? I don't know how you didn't either, because I actually thought it was pretty prominent. Um, like I, that was like, I saw it right away, but that said, there is a lot to watch for in this 10 hour film as Flanagan likes to refer to it. So you were probably looking at lots of stuff, trying to find all sorts of Easter eggs. Who knows? Well, there's also like a, a cute little kid with big old like Coke bottle glasses. Oh, in the right. <laughs> yes, that's true. And that steals the scene every time. 
I love Seriously. that kid. I love that kid. He was adorable. So yeah. Um, another thing that Spencer actually pointed out, um, cause this was his first time watching it, which I can't uh, believe. Yeah. Well, he, he has a different list of shows that he prioritizes <laughs> that aren't always horror related. Um, but in episode six, which actually might be my favorite episode mm-hmm. of the series, when the family gathers at the funeral home, the entire episode is shot with very few cuts. Yeah. And most of the scenes are extremely long takes or at least made to look like extremely long takes. So I did a little research after he brought that up. And indeed, the first 15 minutes and 38 seconds of episode six, not including the beginning uh, one minute and 20 second opening credits, were done in one straight take. Nice. No edits, no cuts. And the entire episode is actually comprised of five of these long takes, the longest being the third take, which is, or the third sequence, I should say, which is over 17 minutes long. Damn. Uh, And production was shut down for six weeks due to detailed rehearsals to accomplish this. So that, once again, like, he took on so much more than he needed to take on just to make one episode in this this series so that he's just like it just blows my mind I kind of get to that a little bit later but I mean he does it because he truly cares about the content like you know the source content he wants to do it right like I said attention to detail baby oh my god but it's impressive for sure And then there's also these great monologues that many of the characters give throughout the show that just propel the story further and you gain so much more insight into the characters without having to go through like a lot more episodes to get their backstory and all the monologues are just so great. Well, as we've established, Flanagan is he's a decent screenwriter to say the least, whatever. No, he's awesome. He's fantastic. But... Additionally, I have to point out that large portions of the monologue specifically, but some of the character dialogue and even the voiceovers were taken from, dare I say, an even better writer than Flanagan. Shirley Jackson, of course, the writer of the book, The Haunting of Hill House, he did pull a lot of the actual verbiage and prose from the book and wove it into his dialogue, but it was masterful. I agree. I agree. So wait, since I have not read... Shirley Jackson's book yeah is there like so Carla Gugino's character is she in the book so no because her monologue was phenomenal so that was all Flanagan that was not Shirley Jackson no some of the character names and traits are translated into the characters from the film if you listen to our show with even a casual regularity or shit if you've only listened to one episode You're most likely aware of my fandom for the literary work of author Shirley Jackson, and in particular, the book The Haunting of Hill House. Likewise, as discussion of one naturally mentions the other, you've heard my soapbox speech about how the 1963 film adaptation of Jackson's novel, simply called The Haunting, and directed by legendary director Robert Wise, is a cinematic work of art, technically innovative and mind-bogglingly faithful to the novel source material. I'll come right out and say that I enjoyed Flanagan's Netflix series. To be honest, The Haunting of Hill House Netflix style was, for me, my turning point. 
Mike Flanagan went from, oh, yeah, that guy who did that one good Ouija movie to, well, shit, this guy knows what the fuck he's doing and he has done his damn homework. It totally shows. Hold up, you may say. We know you hate remakes, Mindy. We've heard you bitch about that 1999 remake of The Haunting. What, like every episode? Okay, well, I do hate remakes. But Mike Flanagan didn't remake The Haunting of Hill House. Hear me out. With Hill House, Mike Flanagan did what great artists strive to do. He took inspiration from, I'll argue, two phenomenal masterpieces, Jackson's novel and Robert Wise's film adaptation, and so inspired, created something equally resonant and moving and frightening and as fantastic as his predecessors did before him. He created something new, completely new, yet very closely tied to both the novel and Wise's film. It's not quite an adaptation. Flanagan's Crane family may have issues, but believe me when I say that, that is nothing compared to the Cranes of the source material, which is a good thing. In an interview with denofgeek.com, Flanagan said this, about being offered the chance to adapt Hill House into a 10-part series. Quote, Amlin Partners first approached me about the show, and they said, we want to adapt The Haunting of Hill House for television. And I'm familiar with the book, deeply familiar with the book, since I was a child. My first response was that you couldn't do it. It doesn't fit a 10-hour format. My second response was, Robert Wise already did it, just about perfectly. I didn't necessarily think there was any upside in trying to out-adapt Robert Wise. As I was tasked to go off and think about how this could be ex expanded into a series, for me, it was more interesting to break down the book and pull out the characters and the themes and individual moments and pieces of prose even that had really stuck with me and try and rearrange it. Look at it as a remix. For me, the Haunting of Hill House stands on its own merits, yet still honors the art that inspired Flanagan's vision. And that, my friends, is how it's done. Insert mic drop here so I don't blow your ears. <laughs> A little bit of trivia. Um, really quick, in episode five, when Nell goes to see her psychiatrist, who's named Dr. Montague. The, the actor who plays that psychiatrist is a legendary actor, Russ Tamblin, who I've mentioned many times, but he was also the original Luke Sanderson in the 1963 film adaptation. And the name Dr. Montague is actually a name of a character from The Haunting of Hill House, the novel. Um, it was changed for the Robert Wise film adaptation, but they, the fact that Russ Tamblin's character is called Dr. Montague is a wink to both the novel and the fact that the actor playing him was in the film. I mean, clearly Flanagan respects his elders and his inspiration. I like that about him. So here's a little bit more trivia from The Haunting of Hill House. So the Crane children in the television, the miniseries, represent the five stages of grief. Stephen is denial. Shirley represents anger. Theo represents bargaining, Luke, depression, and Nell, acceptance. Which there are also... Oh, oh go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that I totally... I never would have really picked up on that, I don't think. No, that's like hidden symbolism Jesus. within the show that like knowing it now, you can be like, oh yeah, that all makes sense. But it's not something that you're 
average viewer would pick up. Yeah, the whole time I was watching it, I was like, you know what this reminds me of? (laughs) Yeah, you're not hit over the head with it, which is a testament to the good writing. Yep. There are also up to 30 Easter egg ghosts that are planted throughout the series. It was Mike Flanagan's plan from the beginning to set up these kinds of Easter eggs to see if people could spot them. While working on the primary prosthetic makeups for the show each day, the makeup team would also produce up to four of the hidden ghosts as well for Flanagan to pepper into the shadows. In multiple wide shot scenes at Hill House, you can see ghosts in the background, sometimes just hands. <laughs> hey. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Right. Uh, shadows or faces. So That's this awesome. is like when I was saying... I could totally watch this a third time and pick up on so much more. This is like, if I were to watch this again, which I probably will because it's such an amazing miniseries, maybe, you know, in like a year from now. Um, but I would definitely try and look look for these ghosts that he hid in each episode. I think that's amazing that he actually had his makeup team each day create like four new ghosts. And I wonder if each day they differed. Well, I have to say that, like, watching it, I had heard that, and it was, I initially, when I first watched the series, I literally tried to, like, look for them, and let me tell you, that shit was exhausting. I I gave up, (laughs) I gave up and just focused on the story. If you are a fan of cinema and you know the Robert Wise film, there are more than just ghosts that are Easter eggs in this series, which also makes it even more impressive, in my opinion. Uh, some more fun facts. Uh, Harris Funeral Home, which is the the funeral parlor that uh, the character Shirley owns and runs, that was a nod to actress Julie Harris, who's amazing, but also played Eleanor in The Haunting, the 1963 film. Um, Luke's treatment center is called the Sanderson Clinic. Sanderson is Luke's last name, in both the Shirley Jackson novel and the 1963 Robert Wise film. I think I can easily say in closing, this was how we should move forward in film, especially with horror. If you're going to remake something, bring something to the table. Show us something new. And like Flanagan, he blew me away with this. He really did. And I, I went in expecting to hate it. And I loved it. I really did. Agreed. Um, Just a couple of things. Um, You guys talked a lot about how he wrote the series. And while he did do, it seems like the vast majority of the writing, I do want to mention that there were a few other writers that did help him out on this. Um, You know, in certain certain episodes. I I actually read an interview with him where somebody said, like, you and I don't remember who else are credited with writing this. And he was like, really? Because there were we had a whole writer's room. So, Spencer, please proceed. Well, I'm not going to mention any specific names other than I do want to mention Jeff Howard because in um, he does work with Jeff Howard or he has worked with Jeff Howard in a majority, I think, of his movies. So, you know, yeah. we have to give some credit to him as well. Um, and then before I forget, uh, I looked up who the editor was on all of his movies and he is his own editor. He's I think Jesus. he's edit, ed- edited every single one of his movies. All right. That's very impressive. And thank you for Yes. Yes. He is talented as he is. I appreciate you bringing up the fact that he has other people helping him with his writing. Um, he is talented, but yeah. it's not a one man show. We have to give props where props are due. 
Yeah, exactly. And I like that he edits his own stuff because nobody knows the content better than the person who wrote and directed it. And while he's probably exhausted half the time, um, I think that's why his movies and many, I guess, many series, uh, why he makes good work because he really pays it. I, I don't have any attention to detail now that I'm like thinking about all the stuff he's done to pull up Kubrick's blueprints. Are you effing kidding me? Like, wow. I'm just, yeah, this is why we're talking about him. He's a really impressive guy and he's very talented. Or even to take on the challenges that he, like, Oh yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, that's why I read that quote where he was like, and I also kind of appreciated the fact that he was like, Robert Wise already did it. And I, cause I've said that for years. So thank you Flanagan for backing me up. But yeah, I would be intimidated as fuck to take that on. And the fact that he did it and then was like, you know what? No, I'm not going to remake it. I'm going to, I'm going to redo it in a different way. I'm going to remix it. I like it. That's smart. And he can hold his own. Like he's, yeah. you know, he's, he's not replacing Kubrick. He's not replacing placing wise he has his own place in cinematic history and his own visions his own voice and that's yeah exactly why we're talking about him spencer did you yeah just on the same note of the writers i i have to point out again with the editors I'm sure he's got a team of at least two or three other people sure. helping him out with editing. Liar! You know, I'm, I'm sorry. As, as an editor, I know that there are assistant editors and assistant assistant editors of and course. all that. So, you know, um, I think even in the Visitations um, interview, he said, I was just in the editing room, for whatever, working on whatever he was working on. And I think that, you know, he was probably working with somebody else. Anyway. It takes a village. Spencer rant over. No, it's our, you, dude, you're you're in this world way more than we are. We are fans, but yes, we need to give credit where credit is due and appreciate that he he does have a team that helps him make his visions possible. So thank you for pointing that out. And it takes a village to make something like this, to be sure, like absolutely for sure. And I think that what's admirable too is that he clearly chooses the right people to work with, so... That's why I think a lot of his stuff is so phenomenal because he's able to recognize I have chemistry with this person. They get my vision. And that's important, too, to understand that and make that happen. So kudos all around to Flanagan and his team and every single person involved, including like the interns that bring coffee. You guys make amazing art and we love it and keep scaring us, please. For the love of God. God bless us each and every one. <laughs> <laughs> Hey man, I like I like new and original horror, and he's bringing it. So I know it. We're I just had a like it was getting very sappy. <laughs> Sharon hates sappy. I don't. I don't always hate sappy. All right, let's move on. All right, so now let's just talk about some of the upcoming projects that Flanagan is working on, and that we're very excited to see. <laughs> Um, the Hunting of Bly Manor, which is season two of Hill House, theoretically. Um, it's a follow-up to The Haunting of Hill House, created and directed by Mike Flanagan and company for Netflix. And it will be loosely based on the 1898 horror novella The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. While the creative team and many of the cast of Hill House are returning for Bly Manor, fuck yeah, uh, the narratives of the two series will not be connected. The Haunting of Bly Manor entered production on September 30th, 2019, and is expected to premiere on Netflix in 2020. Hmm. Uh, 
Though an exact release date has yet to be announced, Flanagan tweeted in April that Bly Manor's release date should not be affected by the coronavirus pandemic as they had already finished filming prior to production shutting down. Thank God, because I really want to see this. <laughs> Agreed. I want to see it too. So I'm glad he was able to finish one project uh, because the rest of these projects that we're going to mention... Mm, yeah, it might be a while. Yeah, so. yeah. And I, I do want to point out that there are already two films based on that horror novella. Yeah, there are. Be- the, in- the Turning, which came out this year, which we haven't seen, and The Innocence from the 1960s. Yeah, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what he does differently. And it's funny because The Innocence came out around The Haunting, and it stars Deborah Kerr, and it's also a fantastic movie. Um, so this is like the second time that he's going to be remixing a story that's very famous and has already been brilliantly done and I have no doubt that he's going to kill it. He's going to be great. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Me too. So next up we have Midnight Mass which we uh, talked about a little bit earlier. Flanagan will direct and serve as the executive producer on this TV show set to take place over seven episodes. Once again, it's about an isolated island community that experiences miraculous events and frightening omens after the arrival of a charismatic, mysterious, hot young priest. Thank you for adding that. (laughs) I had to. I couldn't resist. Character names and descriptions are not being revealed, but we do know that Henry Thomas, Kate Siegel, and Annabeth gish as well as other flanagan favorites will be in this series shooting for the show however was supposed to begin this last spring but due to covid that did not happen um and this is according to a february 2020 article on deadline by denise petsky um and i honestly couldn't really find much more recent information on this so this is put on the back burner uh yeah until who knows indefinitely yeah right (laughs) who knows when all this is gonna end uh yeah mindy fuck you fuck you coronavirus um what's next is the midnight club according to a slash film.com article the midnight club is in development clearly uh it will be a new series that flanagan is adapting from the night the 1994 Christopher Pike horror novel for Netflix. Fuck yes. He has stated that he is a longtime fan of the world of Christopher Pike. In a Variety interview, Flanagan said, quote, I began brainstorming an adaptation of The Midnight Club as a teenager. So this is a dream come true. God damn it. I love him. He also said, <laughs> quote, we will be incorporating a lot of his books into the series. So whatever your favorite Pike book is, there's a chance it'll be part of the show, unquote. After Midnight Mass resumes filming, Flanagan will likely begin work on Midnight Club soon after. And that's so fucking awesome. I knew that they were making the Pike story into a miniseries. I did not know Flanagan was the one behind it. I think I'm going to freak out. Anyway, Sharon? Well, I think it's just a movie, right? Wait, is it a miniseries? It says or it's a series. Oh, it does say it's a series. Bup, bup, bup. Oh, yep, yep, yep. We read those books when we were young. I loved those books. I'm sorry. And I did not, like, with him behind it, oh my god, I'm freaking out right now. Anyway, what's coming up, Sharon? What's next? Alright, so the last one that I have is Halloran which prior to the release of Dr. Sleep, Warner Brothers had enough confidence in the film that they hired Mike Flanagan 
to script a sequel focusing on the character Dick Halloran with the working title Halloran following the disappointing box office performance of Dr. Sleep, which I'm like, that kind of pisses me off because I would love this movie. And if it doesn't happen because of the box office performance of Dr. Sleep, which should have made a lot more money because it's an amazing horror film, whatever. The project's basically unclear at this point whether it's going to happen. I mean, it's also unclear whether it's going to happen because there's a fucking pandemic. Uh, so, yeah, we we don't really know. But according to Den of Geek, whether the potential movie, which is under the working title Halloran, is a prequel focused on a younger dick or something else entirely is anyone's guess. It's not even clear if the movie is still happening at yeah, all. That's disappointing. It's very disappointing. And I would love to see a backstory because yeah, you know, right? Dick Halloran, he talked a lot in Dr. Sleep and also The Shining about his past with his father and his grandmother. And I think it would be a really fascinating story. And yeah. I would love to see what Flanagan did with that, what he would create with that. Um, you know I what? Know bes- Na- yes. Nature is crying at your news uh, upon hearing that because it is now raining very hard outside. Oh, finally. <laughs> I've been, it's supposed to thunderstorm all day, day today, and I was looking forward to it so we could just stay in and watch horror movies and, you know, be all like, cozy while it storms outside and has yet to rain today because weathermen cannot predict a fucking fart mother nature don't give a shit (laughs) um but yeah that's all i have i i thought spencer told me that there was actually like a few more upcoming projects that he was working on. I thought he said, holy shit, he's working on like seven upcoming projects. Like I said, he is competing with James Wan to see who can sleep the least <laughs> and just, you know, keep pumping out material. But yeah, I thought there were more. Um, I'm looking at IMDb right now and there's only, I mean, Midnight Club isn't even on this list. So no. I don't know what that deal is. And I mean, maybe they, because of COVID, they, you know, they've taken some of these off because they can't really even be in development because they, he can't even work on the other things. Yeah. I, yeah. Cause I definitely heard about the announcement of it, of midnight club going to, you know, be a series, but yeah, you're right. I mean, who knows? Literally like there's no, nobody knows what the fuck's happening. So it could be that things are just TBD. Well, I'm guessing after, um, you know, he totally finishes with post-production on The Haunting of Bly Manor, he's probably just going to pump out like 50 new scripts. <laughs> I, I am so, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be selfish, but I'm so glad they finished filming that before the pandemic because I really want to see that. And I'm like, oh my God, we're going to get new Mike Flanagan content, maybe before the pandemic's over maybe so that would be i just i love it give us more man give us more so now that we have just covered all of flanagan's major work over the last two episodes we need to talk about our favorites mindy do you have one piece of work from him that really stands out above all the rest Uh, i do and this is gonna surprise you probably uh but honestly i have a soft spot for absentia um maybe it's because it reminds me of other pieces like 
primer or I totally didn't bring this up, but um, the French show, not the terrible American attempt at a remake, but The Returned, um, which Sharon and I both watched, uh, it also makes use of sorry, it also makes terrifying use, I should specify, of a creepy tunnel, <laughs> just like Absentia does. But um, as a first outing for Flanagan, I think it's a pretty solid movie, and I really respect that. Um, plus, it totally creeps me out, because I hate tunnels like that. Um, obviously, I'm a huge fan of what he did with Hill House, um, but I kind of took that out of the running, because it seemed like an obvious answer for me. <laughs> I totally thought you were going to say Hill House, so you're right. <laughs> I also love, obviously, Dr. Sleep, even now that we've researched it, and I really admire Flanagan's attention to detail with what he did. But again, I'm trying to think out of the box a little bit. Um, although I've come to overall respect all of Mike Flanagan's work even more than I did before recording this. And I'm so glad I got to rewatch like Oculus and everything because I kind of really love those movies a lot more now. But Absentia just stands out to me. Um, I also really don't like creepy crawlies of any kind. And like literally just thinking about that thing in Absentia and the sound, because I know we talked a lot about the sound design and the sound in particular is literally making my skin crawl right now. So I'm going to stop talking about it. Um, (laughs) But clearly that movie has a lasting effect and it stuck with me. And I think that's really impressive, especially since it's his first film. So that's my answer. Boom. Sharon, how about you? Mm, Well, now my answer seems boring. (laughs) But but I'm kind of glad you set up Sencha because I thought we would both be talking about Hill House because that is what I'm going to say is my favorite work by Yay. him. Although I probably would not have said that before I rewatched it, but after rewatching it, I definitely think it's my favorite. I just think it was so original and different from the Robert Wise movie, mm-hmm. The Haunting. Um, I'm assuming it's different from uh, the book in many, many ways, which, you know, basically that's just based on what I've heard Mindy say about the book because <laughs> I have not read it. Uh, it's on the list, though. I will get to it one day. Um, but he did give homage to the originals while yeah. keeping things fresh and current. He hid tons of Easter eggs throughout the movie, or, sorry, the miniseries, although you did refer to it as a 10-hour movie. He did, actually. So I just kind of <laughs> took that and went, ran with it. Thanks, Mike Flanagan. <laughs> well, we'll just say it is a 10-hour movie. But he had a bunch of Easter eggs throughout it for diehard fans. Uh, his casting choices. I mean, mm. total perfection. And you really care about each and every character, despite the flaws that they have, which is kind of hard to do. Because yeah. usually when you're watching a movie, there's like one character that you're just like, meh, like I don't, I don't like them. But I really felt an emotional connection with all the main characters of the show. Um, the sets, I mean, fucking gorgeous, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, it was terrifying because Flanagan knows how to build tension and keeps building it, as you know we discussed previously in this episode and last week's episode and sometimes he'll keep that tension going throughout an entire one hour episode just using like mood facial expressions lighting uh even silence sometimes to keep you engaged until the terrifying reveal i mean honestly i can just go on and on we already went on and on about how much we love Hill House. Um, but there's just certain things that you watch that make you feel like home. Mm-hmm. And for me, 
Twin Peaks is one of those shows. Um, the original Black Christmas, House of a Thousand Corpses, like all those things just feel like home to me. And they just, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but it, they just make me feel comforted. And to me, Hill House also does this. So well done, Mike Flanagan. Also, Mike Flanagan, if you are listening, <laughs> we hoped you enjoyed our episodes about you and your work. As you can tell, we're huge fans. Uh, if you did listen, you don't need to reach out to us and let us know. But if you listened and enjoyed our episodes, just put a horrifying hand scene in your next movie. Oh, come on. <laughs> so that we know that you listened and liked our episodes. <laughs> that's kind of cheating because I'm willing to bet that's going to happen in his next movie. I know. But all joking aside, we would love to interview you one day. So we'll have our Spencer contact your Spencer. <laughs> Everybody needs a Spencer. <laughs> They kind of do. You're very useful. All right. Um, so that is all we're going to say about Mike Flanagan. Um, well, there might be a little bit more. But we're basically wrapping up the episode here. We did want to give our condolences to one of our listeners, Jim. His mom just passed away recently. If you're an avid listener, you may have heard Jim's story about his mom that he wrote into us. It was a story about how his mom went to high school with Ted Bundy and was actually friends with him and was in love with him way before he became one of the most notorious serial killers in the U.S., though. But we just wanted to say that we are so sorry for your loss and we are thinking of you and your family. And as Jim wrote to us, he hopes that his mom will not be getting any visits from Teddy, which is what she used to call him. But we do hope that you guys are doing okay. We do. Our condolences, Jim, but thank you for getting in touch. And um, we're so sorry to hear about your loss. We hope you're doing well. Yeah, I will chime in here. We are very sorry to hear uh, about your loss. That is never easy. Um, But I am glad that we got to learn a little bit more about you and your family and your mom and this incredible story. So, yes, our hearts go out to you. Very much. So I think this is a good place to leave off. Uh, we will have links in the episode description to all of the articles that we used for our research, as well as the link to Flanagan's short film, Oculus Chapter 3, The Man with the Plan. A link to the article discussing the differences between the original and director's cut of Dr. Sleep will also include a list of the other podcasts that Flanagan has been on if you want to listen to those interviews. You can write to us and tell us what your favorite Flanagan film is. Also, if you have any ghost stories, scary stories, deke-loving stories, or if you grew <laughs> up in a haunted house and would like to share your stories with us, we would love to hear what happened. If you have the shine and can see and feel things, we would very, very much like to hear about that, too. So shoot us an email with your stories at horror at gmail.com. If you're able to, please subscribe to our Patreon if you want to have early access to episodes, hear exclusive episodes, or see exclusive posts, and receive cool shit. I mean, gifts. (laughs) No literal shit will be sent to you. (laughs) Right. Oh, and speaking of Patreon, we want to give a big thank you to Cody, our newest Patreon subscriber. Woo! Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Cody. Uh, Lastly, we hope you are all staying safe and healthy. Please be kind to each other. Help each other out. And as always, thanks for getting creepy with us.
Sharon, do you want a beer? Uh, oh my god.